Good morning. I want to begin by um, thanking the congregation uh, here at Sunny Slope. Uh, as many of you know, I know that Mark said that you have several new members here, but uh, the church here has supported the work uh, Church Christ Plants for uh, quite a few years since it since it began. We started in 2015. And what we do is we go to countries all over the world and we preach the gospel um, using English English is the language out of the Bible. So the, the church here has been a, a, a tremendous support for that and also the, the support of um, a lot of the Ukrainian brothers and sisters who went to Poland. Uh, we made, we've made two trips there this year and we've taken funds from the church there to ensure that they have the things that are necessary, the, the, the food, the shelter, clothing, just, just to be able to have uh, the safety and security away from um, the bombarded country. So uh, uh, there again, the, the, all the brethren there are tremendously thankful to the church here in the U.S. Um, for those specific thoughts and prayers and donations. And I love being able to be that outlet to be able to take those means to them. So you, you partner with that. And so uh, the church obviously is blessed um, by being able to be a part of that. You know, we talk about in, in, in the scripture that was read um, previous to me coming up here, a lot about Jesus being that shepherd. Later on, he says, I am the true shepherd, right? He is the true shepherd. But what makes him that true shepherd? Because he takes care of the flock. Because he watches out for them. When we, took and, when we take a look at that spiritually, I've entitled the lesson, He Knows Our Name. And when you think about it in, in, in general, it may not seem like much. Of course he knows us, right? Of course, he, he has, he's familiar with us. But I don't know, and I guess the lesson this morning is going to be at what lengths and what that means for us. What's the significance of him knowing us? I mean, to think about what that means in the, in, within the context. He says in verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls out his sheep by name and leads them out. Three facts this morning concerning this very point. God knows our name. The very first fact is when we dive into the knowledge that God has. The knowledge that he is. But not only the knowledge, but that power that exuberates from him, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, God's nature. When you, when you think about who God is and what he is, is so vastly larger than anything we could imagine. Larger than anything that we could rationally ascertain to grab hold of. You look at 
the world's population, they say, what, it's close to 8 billion now. 8 billion souls. And God knows everyone. God knows every single person intimately by name. So a couple of those qualities, talking about the, uh, his, his knowledge, talking about his, his wisdom, the reality of God's conscious awareness of every person, of every event, everywhere, at any and every moment of time, that he is all-powerful, that he is in control of everything. The one scripture that I believe we could turn to, and if you were in Bible class this morning, we actually looked at it, and I was going, Mark, don't, don't, don't. But he, thankfully, he actually missed the verses that I was going to. Psalm 139. Open your Bible to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 7 and following. He went right up to verse 6 and stopped. So, it's good. And it's because it, that's not the point he was making, the point I'm making. Notice what he says. Psalm 139, beginning verse 7, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike of you. David is acknowledging right here. That very truth that God's presence cannot be escaped. He's, he sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees every single thing in our lives. There is nothing that can be kept secret from him. Not even the things that come up in our mind. God knows. And God demonstrated time and time again throughout the, the prophets in the Old Testament, through, through man in general, all the different examples of characteristics of the various leaders that God utilized. But one in specific, David. God demonstrated he knew David. From the time when he was a shepherd for his father, he knew David's heart. From the time that he lived as a fugitive from Saul, he knew the pain that he was facing. He knew the struggles he was facing. To the time where he sent, if you remember, Uriah to the front of the line, and he was murdered. God knew. And so we talk about, you know, in, in David's life, and it was mentioned this morning, that he, he was the, known as the man after God's own heart. God knew David intimately all throughout his life from beginning to end even in the womb God knew him God has complete 
knowledge. He has complete power and total control over everything. From the smallest details to the largest grand scheme of things. Like a sparrow. Remember in Matthew chapter 10? He cares if a sparrow falls. Or what about, he? it also says there that he knows the very number of hair on your head. And you say, well, sometimes that doesn't take very much because, you know, some have more hairs than others, so it's easier to count that, right? I'm sorry, guys. But God knows. He knows the things that we need. Matthew chapter 6. Why worry about the things that we need? Clothing, food, water. God knows that we need them. Worry won't add a single cubit to our height. It won't add a single moment of time to our day. Why worry? God is in control. He knows what he's doing. He's got all the power. He's got all the abilities to continue to maintain the very creation that he put, or wait, spoke into existence. Talk about power. Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, remember there, even the waves and wind obey his voice. He had control over the elements. All of creation is under his power. No God, no idol that man could fashion could stand up to him. Remember the example on, uh, what was it, Ezekiel 18? Mount Carmel? 450 prophets of Baal versus Ezekiel. Who won that battle? Obviously God. God was the one that showed his power. Not the 450 prophets of Baal. There is absolutely nothing that is too hard for God to accomplish. Jeremiah said in chapter 32, verse 17, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Nothing. There is nothing too hard for our God. There is nothing that he doesn't know about each and every one of us intimately. Some might say, ooh, 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 wait a minute. I better change some things, right? I think that's kind of the point. If God knows us that in that much detail, how important is it for us to live for him and not ourselves? The second fact that I want us to see. What does this knowledge do? What is the fact that God knows each and every one of us individually, our name, details, everything about us? Number one, or the main thing is that it shows how valuable we are to him. It shows our significance God knows us. Not just humanity, not, not just the fact that he created it, that he, you know, put the eyes where he placed the eyes in the body and he created and formed everybody and everything exactly the way that he decided, that he determined. It's not just that. 
but he knows us individually and as a group. Our lives have meaning. And you hear that a lot. What's the purpose of my life? What am I supposed to do? What's God's will for me? Have you heard it? Maybe you said it. I have. Let's look over the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter, well, we're going to kind of look at a few chapters there in Ephesians. Paul begins the letter talking about the blessings that we have in Christ. As God's children, as those who are in Christ, we are blessed, what's he say, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. What are you talking about, Paul? Paul says, well, namely, you were chosen. Not just chosen individually, but chosen before the foundation of the world. Grab onto that for a moment. Are you telling me that way back when God spoke creation into existence, that he knew us? Absolutely. And if we could wrap, just wrap our, our human minds around that very thought, we could grasp what we are doing in this life. We can get a handle on what we do and how we please him each and every day. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption. He's adopted us as, as sons. We have, verse 7, redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 11 talks about how we have obtained an inheritance. Peter talks about this inheritance in 1 Peter. He talks about how this inheritance is not going anywhere. It's undefiled. It's reserved. It's kept. When God makes a promise, he does it. He's serious. And God knows us. He has a relationship with us, or at least he wants to. Not only does he, uh, Paul say that we have obtained that inheritance, but he goes on a little bit later and says we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee, verse 14, of our inheritance. Do you feel blessed as a child of God? Do you feel blessed as a Christian? I mean, never mind the fact that he knows us specifically, but he has, number one, laid out everything since creation that brought us to where we are right now. What we are serving him, or how we are serving him, what we are doing in our daily life. Our lives have meaning. Chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There again, the idea. God had a mindset. He had in his mind a purpose for us. What was that purpose? To do good works. Now, how is, how is that a purpose? Because in doing so, we glorify him. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. Sometimes people say, you know, that we were created. The purpose for our creation is simply to be saved. To just go home and be with him for all eternity. And, and yeah, that, that could be a piece of it. But what Paul is saying here, though, is that our purpose of creation is for good works, not to gain salvation, but a product of it. It's a result of salvation. We have been created for a reason. We have significance. Our lives have meaning. You know, going back to what, what Paul was dealing with in the mindset of the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. And the fact that he had to talk to them about this mystery that was hidden long ago, but now is made known. And that message or that mystery was the fact that God has taken down that dividing wall. He took the law out of the way and his son took its place. And he took down that barrier that was nailing us to our cross. Jews, Gentiles have the opportunity have the right to be children of God. Have the right to be in one body with him. And that's a blessing. I love the book of Ephesians because it literally talks about blessing after blessing after blessing that we have because of what he has done. We are significant. We are significant to God. Chapter 3, verse 8, getting to that mystery aspect, he says, To me, who am I who am less than the least of all the saints? This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, here it is, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be, might be made known through what? The church. It was God's intent. As he goes on to say, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was God's intent that through each of us, individually and collectively as we are together in the one body, we are to make known the manifold, the many-faceted, aspected wisdom of the Father to everyone. We have purpose. The church has purpose, is significant. Your life has meaning. What I want to spend the rest of the time with 
this morning is what this should what this should create within us how how much blessing is it to know how significant we are how much blessing is it to know that god has planned all these things all these blessings since the beginning of time and he has upheld them by the word of his promise since then what a blessing it is to know that god intimately knows each and every one of us how should i live my life what should that do in my life? I want us to look at the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, this is probably one of my favorite passages. Because we learn about Isaiah's call. His call to be a prophet. When we realize what God does for us, what he continues to do for us. You become devoted to his cause. Notice what Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One cried out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Just a picture. Isaiah says, this is what I saw. I saw this in a vision. And the date, you can go back and you can research King Isaiah. You can research all of the various different things. You can know exactly what's going on during the time of the Israelites. Isaiah says, I saw that God was king. The king is dead. Isaiah is gone, but we have another king. He's not dead. This king is, not only is he not dead, he is holy. There's nothing above him. He is not only just holy, simply holy, he is powerful. So powerful that the very words from his mouth shake the foundations of the doorpost. And he says, the whole earth is full of that glory. When we talk about relationships, now we're gonna talk about our personal relationships, people that we know. When you know somebody, and when a person is known by someone, you have an investment in that relationship. It's, it's, it's gotta have some, some fluidity. It's gotta have some connectedness. You know, you can't have a relationship with someone and never communicate, right? And yet, when you talk about, you know, um, marriage and divorce statistics, 
in the world, or maybe even just in the United States, communication, aside from finances, is, is right there as one of the most things. If, if we could only communicate better, our relationships would be stronger. If we would communicate in an appropriate way, our love would be stronger. When you are in a strong relationship with God, when you are devoted to him, it changes you. You have that investment. You have that loyalty to him. And so we talk about, okay, within the scriptures, why did the apostles drop everything and follow Jesus? Why did all the prophets in the Old Testament completely drop whatever they were doing and go and preach the message? Sometimes it was a message of what? Judgment. Sometimes it was a message. It was a good message. A message of peace, a message of safety. Why did they do that? Why did Isaiah record this? Right here in chapter 6 rather than earlier. It fit. How did it impact him? Notice what he goes on to say in verse 5. He says, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see the King, when we come to him and we realize the destitute state that we're in with our sins, we realize we're not worthy. There's no hope for us. That's what Isaiah saw. He was in the presence of God. He could see his power. He could see his holiness. He could see the presence of him. And he says, I don't deserve to be here. When you're in the presence of God, and we could talk about that more specifically, about like in the priesthood. In the Levitical priesthood, the high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. And that was because the glory of God, the Shekinah, would come down and fill that Holy of Holies. It's the smoke, just like, just like here. And if that high priest went in there without offering the sacrifice for himself first, what would happen when he got in there? He'd fall over dead. That's why you see uh, some reference to sometimes having a rope tied to their leg so they can be pulled back out. What happens when you come into the presence of God when you're not prepared? What happens when you come to the presence of God and you don't have that humble mindset? Remember when Moses met God at the burning bush? What did God tell him? Take off your shoes. Why? Because you're on holy ground. 
Oh, is it some special ground? No, it's because God was there. In the presence of God, he demands holiness, cleanness. We see example after example after example throughout the scriptures. God is light. In him there is no darkness. We can see what that light is about. We can also see there are times throughout the scriptures where no one has seen God, his face, at any time and what? Lived. His holiness demands holiness. Isaiah saw this. He saw his destitute state. And it's the same thing that we must do. When we realize what God has done, that he knows us to the extent that he knows us intimately. Good, bad, the ugly, all the warts and all. He knows it. That should cause us want to say, you know what? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm serving him. I'm living for him. You know what? The sin that I have in my life, I'm going to change. But wait a minute. I fall on my face, don't I? I fall short all the time. But it's just like what John wrote in 1 John. If we are in the light, as he is in the light, what happens? The blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us of our sins. We'll never be perfect. We'll always be forgiven as we are in the light with him walking with him. Look what Isaiah goes on to say. Isaiah chapter 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. We all have to have that same moment. God, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Here am I. Send me. I'll be that person that is that silent partner in one of those studies. I don't know everything, but I can be there. I can do that. I could be that person that goes to the hospital and visits someone who's sick. I could be that person who has a godly attitude throughout a day that is falling apart. <laughs> we can do that. Here am I. Send me. Isaiah realized his destitute state and what happened? God took care of it. When we come to God, he takes care of our destitute state. And he knew about it from the foundation of the world. He knew that we would be here this morning, this very moment. He knew that you'd be sitting in the very seat that you're sitting in, having the very thoughts that you're having, reading the very script. Did he really know that? Every indication that I get from the scriptures talks about God knows everything. 
He knows. And still he said, what? I'm going to send my son. My son's going to live his life as a man in the flesh. And he's going to live in such a way that he is going to be sinless. So that he could be that sacrificial lamb that was Old Testament. That's what you had to do to have your sins atoned. But now Jesus comes. Jesus is the only means by which we can be completely forgiven. Once and for all. One time. And so we see lots in the, in the scriptures in the New Testament. When Jesus came, he says you must be born again of water and spirit. Something has to take place spiritually. And that, we have to spiritually have a heart surgery. We've got to cut out the flesh. In doing so, what do we do? We become obedient to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, talks about the gospel being the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, In the gospel is God's power to save us. Save us from what? Ourselves, right? From the sin that is ever present. That is not going anywhere. That puts us in the right spiritual state with him. When we obey the gospel, Romans chapter 6 talks about us being buried in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Just like Jesus was buried. We're lowered in water and then we're risen up and we will too be in the likeness of a new man. Just like he was. Do you feel blessed? Absolutely. Look what the great lengths that God goes through every day because he loves us. What does that mean for us? How should we respond to that love? God, wherever you lead, I will follow. If you have a need this morning, you want to follow him, you want to be obedient to the gospel and be buried in water for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do it right now, this morning. Maybe you say, well, I'm not ready yet. Let me study some. I know the eldership here. I know there are lots of men here. I know some of the ladies you might have a friend you can sit down and study with. Teach them the gospel. Whatever the need is, now's the time to come while we stand, while we sing the song.